I'm Colm O'Sullivan, and this is the Policy Options Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Research on Public Policy. Over the summer, we saw what can only be described as the fall of Afghanistan. Taliban offensive forces rapidly overtook the country in a matter of weeks, causing chaos within the borders and worry from the international community about what would happen to its citizens. And its citizens are who we're going to be talking about today. Because something felt different about Afghanistan, whether it's because of the speed of which things changed or the way the entire world watched on social media as more and more videos of people attempting to escape reached our timelines. There was a collective understanding that these individuals needed support. And with that came an understanding that we need to take in refugees from Afghanistan. A few weeks later, the Canadian government committed to accepting 40,000 refugees from the country. This isn't the first time Canada has taken in a large group of refugees at a time. There are parallels between what is happening now and what happened during the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis, and we can learn a lot from our successes and our mistakes during that initiative. Today, you'll hear from three individuals with deep experience in refugee migration and settlement in Canada. The first is Thomas Sowell, an associate professor at McGill University, Canada Research Chair in International Migration, and currently working on a project called Tajribati, which conducts interviews with thousands of Syrian refugees to explore socio-cultural and political aspects of their adjustment to life in Canada, with a focus on intergenerational dynamics and informal support networks. I'll then speak with Alexandra Dolly, the Senior Manager of Refugee Resettlement and Integration Programs at Mosaic, a BC-based organization and one of Canada's largest resettlement nonprofits that serves immigrant, refugee, and migrant communities throughout BC. Then I'll be speaking with Ramez El Jassim, who arrived in Canada in late 2016 as a refugee. We'll discuss his experience as a refugee and now as a Canadian citizen. Well, Thomas Sowell, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be looking at your research into Syrian refugees five years after they've arrived in Canada. But before we get into that, I want to talk about kind of the basics. What are the, the, the three pathways that refugees can utilize to, to arrive in Canada? Sure. So there's three main programs under which Canada resettles refugees. One is what we call the government-assisted refugees, right? So this is the, the classic form, if you will, um, refugees are selected for resettlement by the UNHCR. They have a set of criteria that uh, they worked out, which prioritizes people who are most in need or most are considered vulnerable. And those people are resettled to Canada, and then they're provided for one-year assistance by the Canadian government through settlement organizations and NGOs, um, right, who help them with language courses, with finding apartments and things of that nature, and the financial support comes through the Canadian government. Then on the other end, you have what's called the Private Sponsorship Program or PSR program. And this is where private individuals or civic organizations, church organizations get together and they sponsor a particular refugee or a refugee family, right? So they they have a voice in like selecting who they want to sponsor. And then after these people are vetted by the Canadian government and resettled to Canada, they're responsible for providing support for one year, right? Financial support and also emotional support and, you know, support figuring out the day-to-day lives of wanting uh, to know like how, how do you find a job? How do you go shopping? You know, things big and small. And then you have a third program, which is really interesting, which is uh, sort of a 
mix of the two, which is called the BVUR program. And I think it stands for Blended Visa Office Referral Program. But it's quite interesting because it kind of combines features of these other two programs, right? It combines the selection of refugees that works just like the, in the government-assisted refugee program, in the GAR program, where people are selected for resettlement to Canada by UNHCR. And then they're placed into this program and then matched with sponsors in Canada, so right, the, the sponsors in Canada who are then providing settlement support, both financial, emotional, you know, and social support, they have no generally no pre-existing connections to these people, right? They're helping, if you will, strangers, right? They were not involved in selecting. I mean, they, they, they get a voice on like you know who who they can support, but they're not. In, they, they don't get a voice on like who gets resettled to Canada. So on average, the if you look at the background characteristics of like who comes. In these programs, the BVOR refugees and the GAR refugees very much look alike, right, in terms of their levels of education, their levels of knowledge of English or French or things of that nature. While the PSR, the privately sponsored refugees, they tend to look different on average. They tend to be more highly educated. They tend to already know people in Canada before they arrive. They have pre-existing connections. So these are the main main three programs and a little bit of the background on, on, on how they work. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we saw a large group of Syrian refugees come into Canada. And looking at that experience, what is the most commonly used pathway that, that they use to get here? So I think in the when the Syrian refugees were resettled, the private sponsorship program was a big part of this. So there were a lot of people who were resettled on this program. And there were a lot of people who were resettled under the government-assisted refugee program. The BVOR program was, in a way, much, much smaller. A lot fewer people were resettled under this uh, initiative. That said, I think it's a very interesting initiative in terms of for us social scientists to study because right, we, it allows us to figure out things by, by making comparisons to both the privately sponsored refugees, but especially making comparisons to government-assisted refugees. We can start figuring out you know, what, is the, what is the effect, if you will, of having a mentor or having a sponsor. So while it's a small program, I think it's very interesting sociologically, and having studied a little bit, I think it's also you know a very worthwhile program. I think it really it does a lot of good, helps people get jobs, adjust to life in Canada who may not have had access to this kind of individualized one-on-one help otherwise. Now you've touched a bit on you know the comparisons of the three pathways that that a refugee can take to arrive in Canada, and and I mean these comparisons are kind of the basis of your research. So could you describe in in more detail what you're looking at? Yeah, sure. So this is one part of that, uh, a large research project that we started a few years ago, uh, where we collaborated with IRCC together, and we did a study of about 2,000 Syrian refugees who resettled in Canada, right? So we had a, a large number of people who we asked a lot of questions People were very patient with us and answered a lot of questions. And so we know a lot about these people's history, like where they come from, what was their path to Canada, what was their experiences in Canada, how they do in the labor market, how what is their language knowledge, what is their religious practices, like all sorts of questions, how did they encounter discrimination and so on and so forth. They have a pretty large, a pretty good picture of what their lives been like. And so doing that, what we made sure is that we capture people from each of these three streams, right? So we capture both people who came in the government-assisted refugee program, we capture people who came in the privately sponsored refugee program, and this uh, blended visa office referral program. So really we wanted to make an effort to capture the breadth of the experience, right? Like people have came to Canada from all the way from British Columbia to, uh, uh, you know, Nova Scotia, all the west to the Atlantic, to the Pacific, right? And just like in terms of the, the, there's a huge 
spread in geography from big towns, uh, you know, like Montreal or Toronto uh, to small villages uh, in, in more rural places. Um, people who, you know, had a fairly easy time, comparatively easy time, maybe better said, uh, adapting and people who had a much harder time. And so we tried to, you know, really capture the breadth of the experience. And so the labor market is one of those things. Like how did people go about finding a job? How successful were they? What kind of jobs did they get? Were these jobs matched their skills, their experiences they had before? And I think you've mentioned an important aspect here, which is that some people had an easier time than others. And, and that's, of course, to be expected in any large group. But I wonder if if you've noticed that one group of these three pathways has had an easier time adjusting to life in Canada. I mean, there's, there's a huge variation, right, in, within each group. You know, it's not that just one group is usually successful and the other ones are not, right? You know, there's, there's a huge variety of experiences. So, right, of course, people who have more education and know English or French, uh, as the case may be, they're going to have an easier time settling in Canada and have an easier time finding a job, right? So if you look at the, the background characteristics, as I mentioned, right, the privately sponsored refugees, they tend to, in a way, score higher on these things, right? They have tend to have more education by quite a big margin, right? If you look on average, I think it's like three and a half years more education than the people in the other to uh, stream. So that's not a big surprise that they tend to do better in the labor market, right? Again, I think it's important to remember that the main goal of resettling refugees is not to find people who will do well in the labor market, right? Yes, we want them to do well in the labor market. We want to resettle people who are in need of resettling, who, who are vulnerable, who need to get to a safe place and need to be given the opportunity to rebuild their lives. Um, right, so based on that, of course, the people in the privately sponsored program, they did quite well. Uh, not only did they have people who, you know, mentored them presumably and helped them find their way, but they also had, in a way, the characteristics that make it relatively easier in Canada. So the really interesting comparison, though, I thought was between the BVOR refugees and the GAR refugees, because as I said, right, they're selected in very similar ways. They look, if you will, very similar upon arrival in Canada, but then they have different experiences, right? One have support through government and, and settlement agencies, and one gets individualized support through sponsors. And we do see in our research that that individualized support makes a difference, right? Even though they look, they're the same on education in terms of knowing English or French, that BBOR refugees tend to do a bit better when it comes to finding jobs in the labor market. And especially they tend to do better when it comes to finding the type of job that's matched to their experiences, right? It's not so much that there's a huge difference in whether or not people find jobs between those two groups, but like there's a difference in like the type of job they find. And that I can't tell you from our research because right, these people are only here for five years. So this in a way and that we interviewed them, you know, they just had found in a way their first job and then COVID happened and a lot of people lost the employment they had and so on and so forth. But what we do know from other work is that First jobs matter often, right? There's the cumulative advantage that comes with having a better job that allows you to make better connections that then translates into a better second job and so on and so forth, right? How this will play out in this case remains to be seen. And, and then now what you've mentioned that this BVOR, the, the sort of community sponsorship model group, is having slightly more success than the GAR, the, the government assisted refugee group. It's interesting because, like you said, they come from the same pool. So I wonder if, if your research has been able to identify why this might be the case. Yeah, so 
we I haven't done all that work yet, and so 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 far I can only speculate a little bit about what might be going on there, right? What we can show is that there's a fairly clear pattern with one group doing somewhat better than the other. If you look at this uh, labor market outcomes. But what exactly is behind there, we can sort of theorize about, right? It might be, as you said, it might be the kind of social support that makes for a more successful job search or makes makes for more better matches. Maybe it's people, you know, utilizing their networks, right? Maybe one of the sponsors is like, oh, I, I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who has just the right job for you, right? Often that's how we get hooked up with jobs, right? Through knowing somebody or knowing somebody who knows somebody. How much of each of these things it is. I can't tell you, right? These things are very hard to tease out in, with, in, you know, with any level of confidence, right? We can find anecdotes about these things and we can tell stories, but like, to to say like really what are the the, the driving mechanisms here? Uh, I can't tell you. Our data may have some clues about that, but that'll take me a little bit more time to dig into and, and try to work this out. It may not allow us to answer this in any conclusive way either, right? And then, well. There's room for more research, as we often like yeah, to say. Yeah. And and in I mean, you know that this has become an extremely relevant topic once again with the situation in Afghanistan and you know Canada's commitment to resettle refugees from there. So I wonder if you've noted anything that led to success for the Syrian group that you know we can replicate in the Afghan group to to give them the best chance at success. I guess what I can say is like it's not. These things are not easy, right? The people working in this area should be proud of themselves of the good work they're doing, right? And the refugees who are making this transition should be proud of the work, the, of the of the successes they're having, right? Thinking through what it means to come to a new country where you don't speak the language, after having been through hell or something quite close to it, like having lived in in, in very precarious situations sometimes for many years. And then rebuilding your life. I mean, that's that's a tall order, right? So I think one needs to be sort of keep that in mind. So what can be done? I think like assistance helps. I think you know the the kind of support that that people are offered seems to make a difference. I mean, that's sort of the lesson from this this comparison that we talked about between the BBR and Gar refugees. I think I would again emphasize here that it's not like Gar refugees don't get any support. They get a lot of support, right? These uh, these organizations do fantastic work, right? So this is just like maybe above and beyond what they get. As I said, like the interesting thing about the BBR program is that it's people getting match responses they didn't know before, basically. Or from the sponsor's perspective, sponsors are helping somebody they didn't know before. They're helping a stranger or who is initially a stranger. I think at the end of the day, throughout the process, these people often become friends and like maybe part of an extended family of sorts. It's not probably that easy to find a lot of people willing to do this, right? To commit to a year of doing this, of helping somebody and taking on a, a you know a big commitment, both financial and also in terms of just like you know emotionally and like the, the support that you provide. It is a big commitment. That's also why it makes a big difference, right? So, I think that's sort of the, the hard piece here, right? Like you know, yes, maybe it's easier. You could say like, well, we have a program that's like you know. A small version of the BBR program where you you know sign up for like six weeks. Maybe you'll find more people to do that, but maybe that's not going to make a big difference at the end of the day then, right? Because, well, we already know a year is not a lot. A year of support for making this really major transition is already like, you know, that sort of, you know, yes, that can get people on a good footing and get them started. But, you know, get started, I think, is the emphasis here, right? This is just the beginning of the process. So I think it's hard, right? And maybe so once so it's be like, yes, you know, 
let's provide as much help as we can. Let's be as generous as we can. Every little thing helps. And especially people who can make a, a, a serious commitment, I think that can be really, really valuable. I think we can, we can show that it can make a big difference in people's lives. Well, you know, Thomas, I think you're right to, to underline that this is an extremely tough process. Yes, yes, to organize, but also just to be a refugee. So I think the research that you're doing is, is so valuable. And, and I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast and speaking with me today. Well, thanks for having me, Cole. From what I gathered from these preliminary findings from Thomas Sowell's research is that social structures are extremely important, not only on a personal level, but on an economic level as well, as we've learned that individuals seem to fare better in the job market when they have these informal structures. But it's not possible for politicians to mandate social structures. There's no bill you can implement to help people make friends. So I reached out to Alexandra Dolly from Mosaic, as she has first-hand knowledge on the importance of these structures and some policy recommendations on how to strengthen them. Well, Alexandra Dolly, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So before we dive in, can you help me understand what Mosaic is and what the work of the organization looks like? Absolutely. Mosaic is one of the largest settlement-serving nonprofit organizations in Canada. We've been supporting immigrants and refugees for over 45 years. And today we continue assisting new refugees to navigate various challenges while they're settling into their next phase of life here in Canada. And when it comes to refugees, we're also one of the largest, what's called a sponsorship agreement holder. So we're one of the largest sponsorship agreement holders in Western Canada. And what this means is it allows us to lead major private sponsorship projects for privately sponsored refugees through the nationwide Canadian sponsorship program. So what we're really passionate in doing for refugees is walking alongside the community and offering them guidance, bridging and support. So we have customized employment services. We have LGBTQIA plus specific services services for seniors, for women specifically. So we really go and we walk alongside people in all areas of their life so that they can really become active, contributing members of the community in Canada. So from language classes to volunteer connections, mentorship opportunities through employment and beyond, we do all of it. And you work with such a wide variety of individuals. In your experience with refugees, is there a shared experience upon arrival that you've recognized? What I'll say is from a personal level, I've been working with refugees for over 12 years. I've been so fortunate to personally get to know hundreds, if not um, thousands of refugees as they arrive in Canada. And a common theme is that people are motivated to give back to the community they genuinely want what's best for their families, for their children. They're dedicated to living a life in safety. And refugees face a ton of barriers and challenges as they begin their new life in Canada. So what I see as a common thread is resilience, that those challenges are met with a level of vulnerability and focus and grace. And when we consider what is most useful for people as they arrive in Canada, I can say so many positive things about the private sponsorship of refugee program. Privately sponsored refugees, they're, they're sponsored here by a group of committed Canadian citizens. And 
it's a different level. It's a different level of connection because to arrive, like I think of a, a close friend of mine who is part of a sponsorship group and they just welcomed a young family from Afghanistan last week. And she invited me over to, sh- to share with me the space that they'll be living. And she has the most beautiful baby crib set up in another room. She had their families. She'd gotten framed photos of um, their family and their baby already up in their new house. So can you imagine arriving and having someone pick you up with warm welcome at the airport and take you to a home that those attention to detail has already been played? Like it's, it's massive. And you can compare that to refugee claimants who are in Canada. They are making a refugee claim. It's a really arduous process and sometimes months or if not years to go through. And they often begin their journey in Canada in a, in a low barrier homeless shelter before they're able to try to get housing. So I see the private sponsorship program as just an incredible example of positively impacting people as they arrive in Canada. You know, what you've just mentioned is is starting to be a, a bit of a theme that like having these open arms when you arrive, just having the support system can be super valuable, not just in the short term, like with mental health and, and friendships, but long term as well, like uh, with employment outcomes, right? So I wonder if you notice a difference in the first couple of years between refugee claimants who have gone through the process on their own and, and the ones who have had the support system right off the bat. Yeah, I see a significant difference. You see the common thread of resilience and motivation to give back in refugees of all backgrounds. But what I see with the private sponsorship program is that it's transformative for both the refugees and the members of the wider community. So when we look at government-assisted refugees compared to privately sponsored refugees, oftentimes with the government-assisted refugees, there'll be a lot of community bonding. So people with shared cultural, religious, or linguistic backgrounds, that they connect and that becomes their key support system. When you look at the private sponsorship program, there's a greater level of what we could call community bridging. So they're connected to people from their own cultural community group, but also because of the nature of the program, they're being sponsored to Canada by members of the wider community. We see a lot more kind of multicultural connection and with a group of Canadian friends, it naturally impacts so many different angles. If you already have that kind of social network or social capital, it's somebody who says, wow, you know, I can vouch that my new friend Salim is an incredible man and he would be perfect for running your CNC machine at your company and or working at a chocolate factory or working at Lush, if you already know somebody who wants to support you and has your best interest at heart, then you just see that that's a really easy transition into employment. We can see the impact that the private sponsorship model has on refugees because it creates opportunities for participation in the community and also economic participation. So when people have those linkages and those existing bonds, that it's a direct avenue to getting employment. And this shows because 70% of privately sponsored refugees in Canada declared employment earnings within their first year of arrival compared to 40% of government-assisted refugees. And this was recently um, a statistic that was in Stats Canada. So, I mean, that's significant. Just one thing in my mind that I want to clarify too is that When we're considering the outcomes of privately sponsored versus government-assisted refugees or refugee claimants, we have to consider that there's a level of nuance 
in, in that as well. So indeed, like the sponsors are committing 12 months of sponsorship support. So people have that built-in social support system, a safe and clean place to live, and a team of people who can become like family that are supporting all aspects of their settlement experience. So that, of course, is putting them a step ahead. Having those ties and connections is one piece of the puzzle, but there's other factors as well. Now, like considering all that, is there a policy mechanism that the government can use to really support these individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, let's take a look, like you said, at the massive Afghan crisis that's going on. Mosaic as a whole, we're, we're walking alongside the Afghan community and we're engaging with members of the Afghan community so that our response is from the bottom up. Many of my colleagues and staff are themselves from Afghanistan with lived refugee experience. And we have a group that's meeting every couple of weeks so that we can understand the needs of the Afghan refugee population and build like bottom up programming. And what we did is when the crisis started to get extremely inflamed, we opened up a registration online on our website, an interest to be sponsored. And we received over 2000 applications to be sponsored. So we have really lofty goals. And over the next two to three years, we will be sponsoring at least 1,000 Afghans privately to Canada. So it's going to be fast paced and it's going to be something that requires a lot of response from the wider community. And, you know, talking about policy and response from the government, as you mentioned, there's really three things that come to mind. One is it would be so incredible to have faster processing times. Right now, the current anticipated wait time to be privately sponsored to Canada for Afghan refugees is about two years. So that's a long time. If you have a group that says, I want to privately sponsor a refugee, who knows what our life is going to be like in two years. And for those two full years, we have people that are living in incredibly vulnerable situations. So Two years is a lot of time for brutal new traumas, and I'd love to see those processing times expedited. And one way that they could do that, this brings me to point number two, we'd love to see a wave on the refugee status determination document from the UN, because this is what Canada did um, in the midst of the Syrian refugee crisis. We didn't require that they had a registration document and we were able to expedite more cases into Canada. So we'd love to see that. And then the third key thing I'd say is we would love to welcome higher numbers than what we've committed to. We've committed to 40,000 refugees from Afghanistan, many of whom will be brought here through government-assisted program, but also the majority of whom will be brought here through private sponsorship. And when we look at that number, we should consider, first of all, Afghanistan is a much has a much higher population than Syria. There's already in Canada a much higher Afghan population than there was Syrian. So what I see is this incredible capacity for our community to receive people and for refugees to be brought to Canada to make a huge impact. And we need to recognize that this isn't just a humanitarian or charitable responsibility. Indeed it is, but also we are benefiting from people coming to Canada. 
my mind goes to Shamarke Dubo, who's a city councillor in Victoria who came here as a refugee from Somalia. Or every day I get to work with a team, many of whom came here with refugee background, and they are making huge impacts in the world around them. And not just with other refugees, but volunteering in the arts as medical professionals, like the impact is substantial. And I know that they impact my life personally in a very positive way every day. So I think that we should increase the number. I think all of those are, are fantastic points. And I especially hear what you're saying about the, the two-year wait time, especially since, you know, people often spend those years in refugee camps where they have like little to no protection or support. And, you know, and we've talked about what the government can do for these people before they arrive. But once they've landed, what are the what are the what do they need from the government? And, and maybe what supports can Canada double down on or, or introduce? Something that I have been so encouraged by, by the provincial government here in BC, they are showing up. And I see the way that they have been creating responses for um, refugee claimants is an area that we can develop some best practices. So a couple of things come to mind. One is looking at housing, affordable housing. I'm sure as is where you are, <laughs> Vancouver is very expensive. And we have a very low vacancy rate. And this is not just the case in big cities anymore across Canada, but all across our country. So how do we ensure that people who are resettled to Canada will have accessible, reasonably affordable housing opportunities in a way that's equitable with members of the wider Canadian community? And honestly, the province of BC, I cannot say enough amazing things about them. They have been showing up. They have been involved in research about what kind of housing opportunities are available, looking at alternative housing opportunities for refugees. I'm also encouraged by the provincial government stepping up and they're releasing a call for proposals in mid-January, which is demonstrating a commitment to refugee mental health, making sure that counseling and group therapy opportunities are available. And the other thing I've seen our provincial government be involved with is recent research projects that I had the opportunity to be involved with as a consultant that explored the shift from humanitarian response to a more human response. And they showed up to every meeting in the process of this research, and they offered their feedback. We, we learned things that when refugees are part of Zumba classes, are part of community picnics or holiday events or shared meals, this is impactful. And we can look at big issues like treatment from the CVSA or the Immigrant, Refugees and Citizenship Canada policies. And these are important. But what I believe and what I've witnessed is that true lasting systemic change actually comes from us as individuals. And by the government supporting individuals in creating that one-on-one -on -one connection, we can have a more human relationship, connection, and level of empathy with our neighbors. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I think you've been able to put a lot of complex ideas into words, and, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. After speaking with Alexandra, she told a story about a man that she met while she was being the first point of contact for Syrian refugees at the airport. The family she met was terrified to be in Canada and spoke no English. She helped them learn English and get settled in Canada. Then, last year, she was out of town and went to a shawarma restaurant and ran into the father of that family, who now owned the restaurant and employed 10 people. 
And that got me thinking about a family from my hometown of Prince Edward County who had a similar experience and is now thriving. So I reached out to them and I met with Ramez El Jessam to hear his story. Well, Ramez El Jessam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome. So I want to talk about your experience from being a refugee to coming to Canada and then becoming a Canadian citizen. So could you tell me, you know, when you left Syria, where did you go and and how did you arrive in Canada? So in 2011, we uh, decided to leave Syria because things getting way like worse. So my dad, we were all kids and I, I was 13 myself and there's 11 of us in the family. So my dad decided to leave Syria just to keep us safe. So we went to Lebanon to like seek shelter and run away from the war. So we went to Lebanon. Uh, we stayed there for since 2011 to 2015. We just uh, none of us went to school there. So mm-hmm. we just worked every worked every day. No like no break, nothing. I myself I worked in a stone factory where like. I was a stonemason. I was only 13, but I had to work and help my my parents like feed the family. So is my other sibling too. And the young kids didn't go to school. None of us went to school. So uh, we stayed till 2015. But when we arrived in Lebanon, we heard about the UN. We never heard about it before, but so we signed up for the UN and in 2015, we got a call from the UN asking us if we want to go to Canada as refugees. And how long was that wait between when you signed up and, and when you received that call? I think we signed up just a year after we arrived to Lebanon. So like 2012, I think, or 13, mm-hmm. we signed up for the UN. And we got the call in 2015 and asked if we wanted to leave. So that was two years then, eh? Yes. No. We had to like wait quite a bit. And so my my parents thought about it and they said it's it's for the best so the kids mm-hmm. could go to school and like we get a better shelter as well because in Lebanon wasn't the greatest uh, for my family. Like myself, I was only 13. I was working seven days a week, seven in the morning to sometimes seven like at night. So we thought about it and we decided to go. And just a few months, like, started doing testing and stuff like medical examination for us and and 2015 October 28th that's when we arrived in Canada we got like the flight we arrived here and when we first came here we got in Toronto and we from Toronto we met the sponsors who brought us here so your family was sponsored by a a community group yes by PEC Syria that's when we met everybody and when you first arrived, what was that like for your family? Were, were they nervous about, about being in a small town? And, and what did your parents think? Um, it's funny actually saying that because my dad my dad and my mom wanted to go back home. My dad told them, uh, like, bring us to the airport. We don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. Like, all of us were scared. Because it was October and there's no no leaves on the trees. Like, everything's scary, right? It's like yeah. a, exactly like in the movies we watch back home, like, scary movies well i mean not only that but you had the luck of uh, of arriving on halloween day am i correct yeah we did yeah. and everybody's like <laughs> dressed in halloween costumes and stuff and we we don't know the culture that's the thing and nobody has told us about the culture so we don't know anything about canada i never heard about canada before coming here i heard just about the u.s that's all america 
That's mm-hmm. all I heard. So yeah, we did wait and the volunteer brought us a few people who actually speak Arabic and talked to us about things and make, made us feel more safer. And when you arrived, no one in your family spoke any English? Yes, not even a word. Uh, we actually used Google Translate for everything. And the first, the first week, I think it's not even a week, I came up to one of the main sponsors, Carlin Moulton. And I told her on like Google Translate, uh, me go to school. <laughs> That's the only thing I told her is like, <laughs> me go to school. Yeah. And she started crying. <laughs> and that, that actually touched me. And why did you write that message? Um, because I, I haven't been to school uh, since I left home, which is 2011, 2015. Mm. And I really enjoyed school back home. And this is my only place where I could hang out with friends and mm. meet like no people. And like, this is my time, right? I was only 12, 13 when I left. And just like leaving school is like really destroyed me. And just working every day, I, I don't think that was the, the greatest for like a kid. So I really wanted to go to school and actually be something. Because I heard uh, like you can be anything you want here in Canada. That's why. So what I'm hearing is that you missed sort of the social group that you had at school before before the war, right? Yes, I did. I didn't go into school here, actually. I I didn't think about it, like about the language barrier. And if you don't have like a language, you can't even make any friends. Sure, yes, you can make maybe a few, but it's not going to be the same as you're like speaking perfectly English. So yeah, I didn't have friends until I actually started talking and inviting friends over to my mm-hmm. house. And during that period when, when, when you were looking to make friends, but you didn't speak much English, how did you manage to make friends? I actually did make a few friends actually without even being in school with them. They actually invited me to their house and for like dinner. And and, and how did you manage that? How Like a gathering. And then that's where I met them. Was that gathering organized by, by the community group? Yes, the, by PC Syria. And, and now you're a pretty big part of the community, am I right? I'm actually one of the volunteers now who bring refugees, uh, Syrian refugees. Really? Yeah. A translator. Wow. And 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 I mean, what is that like for you to to go from being in that position to being the one volunteering and, and giving back? Actually, I know how it feels. So it means to me a lot to somebody who doesn't speak a word of English mm-hmm. and just arrived to Canada, and everything is strange to them. Mm-hmm. So it means it means to me a lot for me to step at their like doorstep. Mm-hmm. and try to help them with anything I could. Now, you've been here for six years, and you've you've learned English, which, which isn't easy. How did you manage to learn so quickly? Um, the main thing is actually not just studying every day like English, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like opening the book or the dictionary and learning. The main thing is actually going out and talking to people. Interaction. Mm-hmm. This is the main thing. Like the connection between myself and other people i just like go out and talk to people and throw myself even though i i have no idea how to say the word or spell it i would just say it and they would correct so now you've finished high school and graduated college correct correct i finished high school i went straight to lawyer's college mm-hmm. i always wanted to be in law enforcement so i uh, applied to police foundation program um i just graduated uh, just this last last year and how about the rest of the family how have they adjusted 
um, the rest of my family, all of them are also pursuing like their like dream jobs. Like mm. for example, my sister Raha, she's uh, studying to become a nurse, and Sleeman is uh, doing the fish company now. He's a fisherman. He's doing really well too. Well, Ramaz, it was it was really great speaking with you, and and I'm so happy to hear that you've been able to pursue your goals, and and to hear that you're now giving back and volunteering is great. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Colin, so much. I want to say thanks again to Thomas Sowell, Alexandra Dolly, and Ramaz El Jessam for joining me on the podcast today. I also just want to note that we will be taking a short break from making new episodes of the podcast over the holidays, and we'll return in January with more great conversations on public policy. If you have liked this episode, please let us know. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might enjoy this episode, please send it to them. You can also contact us on all social media platforms under the handle IRPP, or you can send us an email at communications.irpp.org. You can also send me a message on Twitter under the handle Colum F. O'Sullivan. That's C-O-L-M-F O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening.